We're actually going to be in the book of Romans this morning, Romans chapter 4. We'll be hanging out in verses 17 through 25. You know, not too long after the disciples fled in fear, and not too long after Peter himself denied even knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, they are found in the book of Acts boldly and passionately proclaiming the resurrection of Christ, proclaiming Jesus as the Savior who has risen again from the dead. And their preaching was causing such a, such a stir, such a ruckus in Jerusalem that they were actually arrested by the Jewish leaders and thrown into prison. And they were brought before what would be sort of like the Supreme Court in Israel, the Sanhedrin, the council. And when the whole council is ready to kill the apostles for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection on their behalf, a wise Pharisee stood up to speak. Now the words wise and Pharisee rarely go together. But in Acts 5, there, there is a wise Pharisee. His name is Gamaliel, and he, and he made this point. He said, you know, Jesus isn't the first one to come through Israel and proclaim to be the Messiah. He's not the first one who gathered a group of followers and claimed to be the promised one that is to come. You remember Theodos, don't you? He gathered a following. But what happened when he died? Well, you know, his, his followers, they just sort of fizzled out. They went away. You remember Judas the Galilean? He came through. He claimed to be somebody. He claimed to be the, the promised one. Well, what happened when he died? Oh, his followers dispersed. It came to nothing. He said, you know, if these, if these men are following a dead man, then what they're saying will just fizzle out. But if their message is from God, there's no way you will be able to stop them. So let them be. And the council liked that. They still beat the apostles and sent them out. He said, you know, if they're worshiping a dead man, if they're preaching a dead man, it will fizzle out. Well, it didn't fizzle out. Here we are, nearly 2,000 years later, in 6,006 miles from Jerusalem. Oh, 6,002, according to Google Maps. And we're proclaiming the same message. That Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. And in many ways, we, we, we will do this morning what we do every Sunday, which is to proclaim that Jesus has died and that he was buried and that he has come back to life to defeat the power of sin, to destroy the works of the devil, and to take away the threat of hell for those who would turn to him in repentance and faith. You know, Christians have been gathering for centuries every Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But you know, if the world wants to take notice and talk about the resurrection, we're happy to celebrate another Sunday where Jesus Christ is not in the grave. He ascended even to the right hand of the Father where He is today. We don't look for the living among the dead. He is not in the grave. And this, this theology of the resurrection, this understanding and belief in the resurrection is fundamental to the Christian faith. It's of First importance, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15. So my hope this morning is to walk through the end of Romans chapter 4 there and see this. This is the main idea. Saving faith 
affirms that God brings life from death and that he has supremely demonstrated this by raising Jesus from the dead. Saving faith affirms that God brings life from death and that he has done it by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me read the text for you this morning. I'm going to pick up in verse 17. We'll try to set the context in a moment. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he, that is, that's Abraham, in whom Abraham believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in the faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So there's two points this morning. They're they're fairly simple. If you spend enough time staring at this text, I think you could come up with the same points. First, Abraham believed that God is the one who brings life out of death. That's in verses 17 through 22. Secondly, we must believe that God has brought life from death in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's look at that first point here. Abraham believed that God is the one who brings life. Life from death. So in chapter 4 here, Paul has been laboring to establish the, the argument that we are justified, not according to our works, but according to faith. It's not by works, it's not by the Jewish rite of circumcision that some were trusting in. It's not even by the Old Testament law that was given to Israel. Righteousness comes to a person on the basis of Faith, And so he appeals to Abraham in order to make his point. Abraham, the patriarch, the father of the, the nation of Israel. And in and, and demonstrating that justification comes through faith and not by works, he, he, he goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, where the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Salvation has always been by God's grace on the basis of faith. Importantly, Abraham was not only justified apart from his works, he was justified by his faith, but Abraham was justified by faith prior to receiving the sign of circumcision. And Abraham was justified prior to the giving of the law. His faith was not in the law of God. His faith was in the promise of God that had been given to him. In fact, that promise is there in verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. So so the promise was that through Abraham 
would come not only, not only physical descendants, not only physical kings and rulers and nations, but that Abraham would be a, a sort of spiritual forefather, a forerunner to all those Jew and Gentile who would place their faith in the, the grace of God for us seen in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, that he would be the father of many nations in the sense that God is calling to himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and they are justified the same way Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. So we see, we, we picked up in verse 17 because it's, it's sort of a, a transition there in the middle of the verse from the fatherhood of of Abraham, which is, which is really previous to, to our text. And now we're transitioning to the nature of Abraham's faith. Well, well, what is this faith that saves? What sort of faith does it require to be justified? Or we might say it this way, if Abraham is the forefather of all those who have faith, then we should understand what sort of faith Abraham possessed. That's what we want to think about and consider this morning. And we get our first part to the answer there at the, the, the second half of verse 17. In the presence of God in whom he believed. Well, what, what sort of God? Who gives life to the dead? Abraham believed that God would grant life to that which is dead. He believed that God is God over all, including life and death. And if he so chooses... He can take something that's dead and he can bring it to life. We might ask, well, what opportunity did Abraham have to demonstrate that he believed that God is the type of God that can bring life out of death? And if I'd mix those two up this morning, you just fix it in your own brain, all right? Because I'm going to say life and death a lot, and it might come out funky, but you'll know what I'm saying. Abraham had been given a promise, the promise of a son in Isaac. And this son would come from his wife Sarah, not from somebody else. And this promise, it seemed impossible. Because Abraham was nearly 100 years old at this point. And Sarah was 90 years old. And on top of that, she had been barren and had no children. And so this, this promise is impossible. We'll see that in a moment. Yet Abraham believed, he had faith, that God could bring life out of death. In fact, if you look down there at verse 19, we, we see why Paul is using this language of death to talk about Abraham and Sarah. We see there in verse 19, it says that Abraham was as good as dead. Now, if you feel that way this morning... That's between you and the Lord. But, but really, Abraham, this is good as dead. It's in reference to his capacity and his ability to bear children. He's 100 years old. He might as well be dead if you're asking him to bear a son. But not only that, in verse 19, it continues to talk about Sarah, the one through whom this promise would, or this promised child would come. And therefore, allow Abraham to be the father of many nations. The text says that Abraham didn't disbelieve God when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Now, if you're reading in the ESV this morning, you see a little one there, and you look down in the little margin, it says the deadness. 
the NASB does a good job of translating that, to help us capture this idea that Abraham believed that God could bring life out of death, not only his mostly dead body, but out of Sarah's dead womb. Abraham is good as dead, Sarah's womb dead, yet he believed the promise that through him and through Sarah a son would come, that God could bring life out of this situation, that their deadness in terms of childbearing could be reversed by the God who has authority over even death and authority over life. He could reverse their fortunes and fulfill his promise, even though, humanly speaking, it was absolutely impossible. So he believed in the God who could bring life out of death. Also, he believed that God can summon nations into existence that don't even exist yet. That's in the second part there of verse 17. He believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. God can summon nations to himself that do not yet exist. He can command nations to come through the line of Abraham, even though as of the time of the promise, there is no such thing as these nations. Though none of them currently existed in the time of Abraham's promise, God can bring them, call them, summon them from the line of a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. Now, we've said this a few times already. There's, there's no human reason to believe that any of this could be possible. That's why in verse 18, it says, In hope, he believed against hope. In hope, he believed against hope. It, it, it's a play on words there. He trusted that God is a resurrecting God and can bring about whatever he promises, even in the face of the impossible. He had hope, even though there was no hope. He looked forward to the completion of God's promise, even though there was no hope whatsoever, humanly speaking. And don't we have to have hope against all hope as well? You know, we look backwards at the death and resurrection of Jesus for our salvation, and we'll, we'll make that application here, or Paul just makes it for us. It's really, really sweet how he does that. But we look backwards at the death and resurrection of Jesus, but we have plenty of promises as well that are yet future. And sometimes they seem threatened, and sometimes they seem humanly imp impossible to bring about. You know, just think about when you consider your own sin and you're so discouraged by the fact that you, you still wrestle with the flesh and you think about the promise that one day we will be like Christ because we will see him as he is and that promise feels so distant. We have hope because God has promised it. Not because I can look at my own life and say, oh yeah, I can imagine what this is going to be like. We hope against all hope. You know, we, we think about the promise that all death and disease and tears, they're all wiped away, they're all vanquished when we are with God in His presence forever. Yet we look around and we see suffering, we see hardship and we see cancer, we see disease and sickness and weeping and suffering. And we hope against hope because we know that God has made this promise to us that He is the one who will wipe away every tear. God will do all that He has promised to do, because He is the one who can bring life from 
death, and he can be trusted, therefore, to keep his promise, to keep his word. Notice then as well that, that Abraham's trust in God was not naive optimism. Look again in verse 19 there. It says, he considered all these things we just talked about. His deadness, Sarah's deadness. He considered these things, and he knew he was very aware of the impossibility of it all. He was as good as dead. Sarah's womb was dead. He took it all into, into account, yet he did not become weak in faith. So faith, genuine faith, real faith, is not simply being optimistic about the future. Instead, it's affirming that God is able to do what he has promised to do. Faith is not a leap in the dark as much as it is trusting God, that the one who brings about resurrection can fulfill his promise. The one who can summon the nations who do not yet exist can do what he has promised to do. You see, Abraham was forced to rely on the promise of God. It was his deadness and Sarah's deadness that gave him the opportunity in the first place to demonstrate this faith, to realize his own inability, and to simply throw himself on the faithfulness and the power of God to do what God had promised to do. He did not weaken in the faith when he considered the impossibility of it all. It also says there in verse 20 that he did not waver out of unbelief. Now the author of Hebrews 11 says similar things about Sarah there in chapter 11, verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So here's Sarah affirming the promise. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, there's that language of Abraham, again, he's as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. He did not weaken in his faith. He did not lesson in his faith. Now, if you've read the book of Genesis, you might be wondering, I've seen Abraham laugh at God. Has the author of Hebrews not read Genesis 17? Has Paul not read Genesis 17 where they essentially question God? They laugh that this 100-year-old body and this 90-year-old body is going to create a, a child. Well, Paul isn't claiming here that Abraham's faith did not ever waver, that it was 100% secure all the time. Only Christ has, has demonstrated that sort of faith and faithfulness. But he's using Abraham as an example that overall his, he maintained a firm conviction on the promise of God and he acted on it. Consider Isaac and taking him up the mountain to sacrifice Isaac, yet God provided the sacrifice. So through ups and downs, the, the pattern of Abraham's life, and, and yes, there were some, some embarrassing downs, but through ups and downs, the patterns of Abraham's life was faithfulness. He persevered and he persisted in faith. He had his momentary lapses, but they were momentary doubts. Ultimately, he trusted that the Lord could do what he had promised to do. There's more descriptions here. We're talking about what kind of faith? What does real faith look like? Well, there's more descriptions there at the second half of verse 20. 
No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in the faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So he grew strong in the faith, and those next two phrases then are, are descriptors. Well, what did it look like for him to grow strong in the faith? Well, first, he gave glory to God. Instead of naive optimism, instead of saying, well, I've got faith that everything will turn out okay, Abraham's faith was centered on God. He gave glory to God. How did he do that? By recognizing God's ability to do what he promised and his faithfulness to bring about the impossible. He had the power to bring about life from death, and if he said he was going to do it, then he was going to do it. Genuine faith, real faith, magnifies the glory of God because it recognizes our own creatureliness, our finiteness, our inability to bring about what God says only He can bring about. We glorify God when we have real faith because we bow before His nature and before His perfections, His character. So He He was strengthened in the faith as he glorified God and as he was fully confident in God's promises. It wasn't that Abraham's um, faith is commendable because, man, Abraham is the Savior or the Messiah. It's not that. We've seen his failures. Instead, the focus falls on the object of Abraham's faith, that, that it is on God who can bring life from the dead. So the supreme way, the supreme way in Scripture to worship God is not first to think I have to work for Him, but to trust that He will bring about His promise and that He can do what He has promised to do. So in verse 22 then, Therefore, because Abraham had genuine faith, it was counted to him as righteousness. Because he had genuine faith, it was counted to him as righteousness. A famous actress said one time, you know, I need, I need faith to be able to know that everything's going to be able to turn out all right. Well, that sort of faith is not what is commended here. It's not faith in faith. It's not faith in a good future. It's not faith in yourself. It's not faith in others. It's not faith in the goodness of humanity. From the beginning, from the book of Genesis, the type of faith that saves, the type of faith that results in your sins being taken away and you credited with the righteousness of Christ, to be counted righteous in God's sight, is a faith in the resurrecting God and the the promise that He gave. That death is no obstacle for him. That he brings life from death. And that brings us to our second point this morning. If you're wondering why in the world are we talking so much about Abraham on Easter. Maybe you read ahead and, and cheated a little bit and found out. Point number two. We must believe that God has brought life from death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I love the way Paul just makes it so plain for us. We don't have to guess about what Paul's driving at here. He says, but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Again, the life of Abraham is not just some moral example of how we might have great faith. Instead, his faith is in the God who brings life from death. 
And that was written for our sake, Paul says. The narrative in Genesis was written down for the believers in Rome and by extension for us this morning. You know, it wasn't that Paul began to write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he thought, you know, actually as I begin to write out this doctrine of salvation, I think that Abraham might actually be a good sermon illustration here. You know, sort of the way we use those guys in Acts 5 as a sermon illustration. It's not that. It's that these events occurred exactly according to God's design for the very purpose of advancing God's plan to save people through the son that would come through the line of Abraham, that he might become the father of many nations. It was to show that that, that we might be counted righteous if we place our faith in Jesus Christ. You this morning, if if you hope to stand before him one day and to be welcomed into his presence, if you hope to avoid the just penalty of sin, you too must believe in a God that resurrects life from the dead. And that he has supremely demonstrated this power in bringing his son back to life. You know, this stuff with Abraham and Sarah, that's child's play. Reversing Sarah's deadness. Giving a hundred-year-old man the ability to have a child. That's, that's child's play. God has supremely demonstrated his power to bring life out of death in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I say child's play to God. We can't do that. All those, then Paul says, all those who exercise the type of faith that Abraham exercised will be counted righteous in Christ. You know, salvation has always been by grace, through faith, but now in Jesus Christ, sort of the mystery of how God accomplishes all of this has been revealed. Abraham trusted a promise. He trusted a promise. We get to look back and see the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So I just say that to say this. There is no salvation outside of reliance on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God has now revealed himself through the Son. And he has accomplished salvation through Jesus Christ. If Abraham were alive today, he would need to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in order to be counted righteous in Christ. So there may be some this morning wondering, well, you know, what is it? What is it about me that, 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 that I would need to be counted righteous? Why do I need all of this stuff about, you know, bringing life from the dead and being counted righteous on the basis of faith and, and not on works? Or we might ask this question, you know, with all this talk about resurrecting Jesus from the dead... Why is he in the tomb in the first place? And verse 25 tells us, Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It was for, it was, you could say it was because of our transgressions. To transgress is to, to offend God by stepping over His will, his, his revealed will. It's to rebel against the God who created all of us. It is a rebellion against Him that then required the death 
of his son. The thing that made the death of Christ necessary was transgression, sin, iniquity. Isaiah 53 Verse 11, I think, I think Paul's alluding to this, this idea of delivering up. I think he's alluding back to Isaiah 53. In verse 11, it says, He shall bear their iniquities. In verse 5, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. It was because of our transgressions that necessitated the delivering up of the Son of God. And I wonder this morning, if you, and I'm including myself in all this, if we think about our sin this way, if we consider our sin to be this dire, we have so offended God that it required the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, in order to make atonement for that sin. You know, so sin isn't something that's, that's managed by us, it isn't something that I can just kind of cover over with my good deeds. Deeds. It's not something that I can make amends for. The only solution for my sin, my transgression, my rebellion against the Lord is the death of Christ. Christ crucified, delivered over for our transgressions. We sing that hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, and I tried to quote it in Bible Hour a few months ago and totally slaughtered it, so I wrote it down this time. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose your evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here your guilt may estimate. See the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load, tis the word, the Lord's anointed, Son of Man and Son of God. You think of sin lightly? Look at the cross. See who had to bear the load of sin. It's Jesus Christ and Him alone that necessitated the delivering up of the Son. Now this was because of our sin, but we aren't the ones who could actually deliver up, are we? We, we could not deliver up the Son ourselves. So we might say, though my sin and your sin made the death of Christ necessary, only God had the authority to deliver up the Son. Only the Father had the authority to deliver up the Son. We, we read about it again in Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief this is amazing that god the father handed over god the son and and again i say this pretty regularly but god the son is not some helpless victim who goes to he laid down his life but god the father handed over the son to be crushed why for our iniquity also, Romans 8.32 makes it equally as clear. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. We did not have the authority or the ability to, to deliver up the sacrifice that would save us. God, the Father, had to act. And he's acted in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through the suffering servant. It is through our Lord Jesus Christ that the promises of Abraham find in Christ their yes and amen. See, the wages of sin is death, but for those who believe in Christ, who rely on His work, and not your own works, not your own efforts, 
Not the fact that you did a, a good deed this week. Those who throw themselves at the mercy of God make a trade. Jesus took your sin and grants you his very own perfect righteousness. He takes the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. Christ took death and he gives you life, eternal life. He justifies you. He declares you to be perfectly righteous as if you lived the life that Jesus lived, always obeying. That's how you get treated by the Father when you come to Christ, the one who never transgressed the law, yet he incurred the penalty of the law in our place. He was delivered up for our trespasses, and he was raised for our justification. You know, the death and resurrection of Jesus cannot be separated. You know, it's not, both are necessary to accomplish our justification. If Jesus Christ remained in the grave, then he still rests under the penalty of sin. If the wages of sin is death, and Jesus is still dead, he's still under the wages of sin. He's still under the penalty of sin. He has not defeated it. He has not overcome it. And we have wasted our time this morning. We should have started brunch an hour ago. But he was raised for our justification. Okay, we need to... We need to think hard about this because you know, we're most accustomed in Scripture to associating our justification with, with the death of Christ. And that's right, again, because they cannot be separated. But, but how are we to understand how Paul is saying we are raised, he is raised for our justification? Paul has, I think we get our clues contextually. Paul has already argued in chapter 1, verse 4, you can flip over if you want. You don't have to. Paul is summarizing the gospel that he's going to lay out for those Christians in Rome. In verse 4, it's talking about Jesus and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So according to Paul, the resurrection of Christ is the declaration that he is the Son of God. It's the vindication of the, the perfect life and work of Jesus Christ. He is being justified in one sense. It is his being declared perfectly righteous as the Son of God. It's vindication. Unlike us, Jesus wasn't paying the penalty for his own sin and, and his righteousness was not a righteousness that he needed to come from outside of himself. We need to receive righteousness as a gift. Jesus was perfectly righteous. He wasn't made righteous by someone else's intervention, but he's declared perfectly righteous based on his own flawless record of perfect obedience. And in the resurrection, that's all vindicated. It's declared to be true. That this, this one, he is justified, not by someone else, but by his own efforts. And you and I, if you turn away from your sin, admit your inability to do anything to save yourself, and rely fully on the death and resurrection of Christ as your substitute, then that righteous record of Christ that was vindicated at the resurrection, is credited to your account. And you can stand before God at the judgment. Not on the basis of your own efforts, but, on, but clothed 
in the righteousness of Christ. You know, this is not just a not guilty verdict. You know, some of you are into true crime documentaries, and sometimes they just don't have sufficient evidence. And everything says, I mean, it's, it seems so obvious that this guy did this crime, but we just can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt, so he's not guilty. That's not how we should think about justification. It's not being declared not guilty. The evidence has been weighed. We have been declared transgressors of God's law beyond a reasonable doubt. The punishment for that is eternal wrath. But in Christ, in Christ, we're not declared not guilty. We're we're declared perfectly righteous. His record counts for yours. You know, the most fundamental question everyone should be asking is, what will I do with my son? What will I do with my son? I read an article this week posing that very question. What will you do with your sin? And he sort of pointed to different ways people try to deal with their sin through social activism or through morality. Sort of a lengthy quote, but I'll give it a shot. You may proudly wave the rainbow flag. You may protest racial injustice and gender inequality. You may see yourself on the right side of history to be an advocate for all the right causes, but what will you do with your son? You may decry the intolerance of fundamentalism and lament the conservative church of your youth. You may be proud of your deconstruction and newfound enlightenment, but what will you do with your son? Or these next two may sting a little deeper for us. You may stand opposed to the ways of the woke. You may reject Marxism, socialism, and liberal cancel culture. You may know for certain that, as a, man, that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. But what will you do with your sin? You may embrace middle class values and sing the national anthem with a lump in your throat. You may work hard to provide for your family. You may be happily religious, even a church member. But what will you do with your sin? That's the most fundamental question. And it's not social activism, it's not politics, it's not morality that saves you. It only comes through the work of Jesus Christ. He was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. We can flee to Christ. He alone saves us from the wrath to come. He alone can declare us perfectly righteous before God. You know, anyone here, this, anyone here that's a member of this church this morning, if, if you are visiting with us and you would love to hear more about the gospel, anyone here that's a member of this church would love to have a conversation with you about that. And I'll be at the back, and other elders will be around as well. We'd love to answer any questions you might have about Christ. But we know this, that the resurrection serves to confirm and authenticate the finished work of Jesus. It is proof positive that justification has been accomplished based on the work of Christ. It has been secured for those who have faith in God that he raised Jesus from the dead after paying the penalty for our sins. You know, if you're a Christian this morning, and I know many of you are trusting in Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian this morning, because of your union with Christ, You share in his justification, in his vindication. 
or we might say it this way, Jesus' resurrection-approved righteousness is given to all those, reckoned to you, imputed to you, credited to your account, all those who are united with Christ through faith. You are not not guilty this morning if you are in Jesus Christ. You are not not guilty. You are perfectly righteous. And we too, like Abraham, we might give glory to God by trusting him. The one who, who saved us through the death and resurrection of the Son is trustworthy. We might give glory to God by continually going back to the gospel of Christ and reminding ourselves of this salvation that we're totally incapable of performing and totally unworthy of receiving. We can remind ourselves, like Abraham had to continually, of our deep, deep dependence and reliance on his ability to work salvation through the resurrection of Christ. Give glory to God. Be strengthened in your faith by giving glory to God and by being fully assured of that which he promises. I don't know if you ever paid much attention to newspaper comics back in the day, but there's one called Calvin and Hobbes that's really popular. Some of you may no, it follows the, the, the antics of a mischievous six-year-old boy named Calvin and a, his stuffed tiger named Hobbes. And in one cartoon, Calvin awoke on Christmas. You're going to have to forgive me for using a Christmas illustration on Easter. But he awoke on Christmas, and upon seeing presents under the tree, he, 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 he views that as proving that over the course of last year that he was actually on the nice list and not on the naughty list, and he sits there celebrating in his room saying, Ha! Acquitted on all charges. Completely exonerated. Because he made the nice list. Well, the question for us this morning is, what is the evidence of our complete exoneration? What is the proof that we have been acquitted on all charges and beyond that credited with the righteousness of Christ? It's not the nice list. We don't have to wait till Christmas to show up. It's something far more profound, something that can be verified in history, something that can be truly relied on. It's the empty tomb and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the assurance. That's the evidence. Let's pray together. Lord God, forgive us for the times we take the gospel lightly, we take our sin lightly. Father, again, would you drive your word deep in our hearts through the Holy Spirit of God as he uses the word to accomplish his work. In Jesus' name, amen.